1: go to bluenile.com and use promo code listen to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more that's code listen at bluenile.com for $50 off bluenile.com code listen
0: this is broad radio for you by you Broad radio here for more
2: Hello and welcome to Broad Radio. I'm Jo Stanley and my co-host today is the delightful Kerry Stanley. Hi there, Ken. Hello. Oh my goodness, we're in a real life studio. I know, it's still fresh for us. It's only my second week here. Oh, it's your first time here. First
1: time. It feels. I feel like a real broadcaster. Yeah. I've grown <laughs> up and I'm here in the flesh with you. It's great. I'm very excited to be here today.
2: Uh, and thank you so much for stepping in. Uh, lovely Nellie Thomas was going to be co-hosting with us today. And unfortunately, she's had a little bit of an emergency and I wanted to acknowledge firstly thank you for stepping in great and this is the thing about broad radio is that we are a community supporting each other and I'm I just feel really um really moved by that because it's a very compassionate space and it's quite fresh for radio for me Mm. it's not been the most compassionate
1: experience in my time so i wanted to say thank you oh absolute pleasure like to you know what's uh, what i've been loving watching too and we'll talk about this shortly is the crowdfunding campaign that's Mm. going on it's How joyful to seeing the comments that are coming through and the absolute support goals, tick, tick, tick. Mm. Very nice, but it also brings up other things, doesn't it? Yes, yes. We're going to get to that in just
2: a moment. Mm -hmm. We have an amazing show for you. We've got investigative journalist Jess Hill joining us to talk about her latest podcast, The Trap, which is all about domestic abuse and violence and coercive control, a super important piece of work that she's doing there. We also have Lola Berry, nutritionist and best-selling author joining us. She's going to be talking about failure and fearful failure. And uh, do you even call it failure? I don't know. And first up, we're going to be speaking with Michelle Lim Davidson, who is from a, one of our favorite TV shows from the the newsreader. So as always, we say thank you so much for joining us. And if you are watching live, follow along and share your comments on Facebook and YouTube. Um, if you are interested in catching up on previous episodes, you can do that with our podcast, Broad Radio On The Go, wherever you get your podcasts. And yes, you mentioned our crowdfund campaign, cares, which carries on apace. Uh, you can head to Indiegogo and um, just search Board Radio. You'll find us there and contribute to our crowdfund campaign, which is so that we can build an app because thanks to – I mean, we love Facebook and YouTube and all these, you know, live streaming. What a
3: Who knew it was possible?
2: <laughs> yes. I learned that from the young people. Mm. But um, it only gets us so far to only a certain amount of audience and kind, people who are interested in watching – this sort of thing, whereas an app, take it wherever you go mm, and the listen. whole wide world can listen, which is really exciting. So we're raising money and the exciting thing is we set a target of $50,000. How's that going? We're at $49,000.
1: Come, come on, people, let's get <laughs> over the line. We're almost there. <laughs> I mean, can not you believe that. it, Carrie? You know, you were, I, I read something that you posted Jordan, not long after it went live and it was, had this great momentum and you were genuinely shocked by the response from it. Why was that? Um, Because I believe so
2: strongly in what Broad Radio is and will be and it's the need for it. But you can't always assume other people have the same belief, I suppose. Um, And also that people, you know, they're giving me their $25. It's theirs. And they could use it for fruits and veg it could be petrol in their car it could be whatever they need to use that $25 for but they're buying a tea towel from us and that to me is
1: oh I find it amazing well I think you know because like you they share that vision or they believe in your vision because you've you're putting you know what you believe in out there and articulating it so perfectly unlike myself at this hour of the morning right now (laughs) (laughs) but you know they're they're believing in you and and your vision because then it's not as you said it's not just about you it's, oh, it's not about it's not me. about you at all no. it's about the community that you're that you're bringing together and mm. it's there's there's a need for it and that's oh, what that they're buying that's what they're buying into that's what we're all buying into I bought the t shirt I
2: can't <laughs> wait to see all of us, all in, of us our in our t shirts <laughs> I know we're gonna look like we're some like we'll be a tribe we in our t shirts yeah I mean the thing is too um I like it's not I I want to establish too I'm I didn't come up with this idea because I want to create a radio show for myself to be on. Mm. Actually, I'm looking forward to programming full 27, 24 seven radio where there are so many shows and I'm not on any of them. I'm in the background making the company grow. Um, So for me, it's a, the fact that I have heard so many women over the last five years say I don't know who I am anymore I feel like I'm disappearing I'm not being recognized as my you know my contribution at work isn't valued anymore because I'm sort of getting over 40 and I'm just tired of hearing women feel like they don't they're not relevant Mm. because it's not true we're stepping into our greatest power at this age
1: Mm. wouldn't you say Uh, look look it is and what with that comes you know just new adventures uh, great or otherwise that's you know uncharted for us women before us have have gone down those paths obviously but they've never really spoken about it or given the platform to speak about it perhaps Mm. and so it's really lovely i think to be able to share all of the stories from collectively from anyone who wants to tell them Mm. then that will live on a place because it's you know technology great it's it's online forever to be and so it's always almost a resource as well then for down the track for anyone that wants to jump in and you know for our younger generations too. Yeah. It's a place to teach and learn from.
2: So talking of uncharted territory, you are Mm. moving yourself into uncharted (laughs) territory.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes, um made the decision to move to Sydney. I um, currently halfway through it, so um, currently my partner Lexi and I are squatting in our own home here in Melbourne because our removalist came on Friday and <laughs> moved everything up to the um, new apartment in Marrickville in, in Sydney on the weekend. So yeah, that was a decision that kind of um, was led by my partner. She wanted to get back to Sydney and for her career and for herself and, and I went, you know what, I'm up for a new adventure. And that, with that comes a whole lot of yay yeah, excitement but a whole lot of um, scariness. This has been my home for 23 years. I had my children here. Um, well, McConnor's now 26, so he's he's not a kid anymore. He's settled down. And I think the biggest thing f- for me moving was, is he okay? And, of course, yeah, he's okay. Mm. Um, and my best friends are here. And so uh, I it, flip between. It's bringing up absolutely everything. The packing was bringing up all the emotions and the tears and the it's, it's a pendulum swinging constantly, but I know that you know it's Melbourne's just a flight back, and I mm. will be coming back and forth you know for various for work and for friends and family and everything like that and but I just have to trust in the my gut, and my gut went, yeah, you know what you can do this mm. and let's just go for it, however that looks. It is a very i
2: I don't think um I've never lived outside of Melbourne, like right. so never right. Which but. it's I have a bit of regret about that actually. I'm kinda Are look. you
1: well travelled though? Have you done No.
2: That? I'm a very <laughs> sheltered person. <laughs> I
1: wouldn't have thought so.
2: <laughs> no, I'm, I I haven't, but um what I so I have huge respect for people who move cities. Amazing. But also
1: I think to to face a fear
2: and go, mm, I will do it anyway,
1: that's not easy. No, no, yeah. absolutely not interesting that um coincidentally, you know, having Lola um later on to talk about that very thing, it's like, oh, it's so true mm-hmm. to go, okay, look, this is uh, learning to recognize what anxiety looks like, and we we speak about anxiety across the board, it's so it's a conversation that lots of us are having now, but recognizing how that looks to you and how you can move through it, and mm-hmm. yeah, just recognizing going oh, you know it's okay and then and yeah, yeah, find the right solution, yeah. Anxiety is my
2: constant companion right now. Uh, Do you have a name
1: for it? Do you call it like you know? I don't know.
2: Um, I'm frequently <laughs> saying, "Oh my god, I'm going to spew." I, I've said that a lot, actually. I love <laughs> beautiful row. Our producer came up with a, a quote this week that she found from Adele. Who? What was it? <laughs> Oh, uh, it was basically that she generally pukes like a maniac before shows, but she oh. finds that the the more the puke, the better
0: the show.
1: Oh, Okay, <laughs> can you imagine? Is there a bucket under the desk? I'm not seeing. <laughs> I, know, I
0: mean,
1: right? <laughs> poor old Adele having a good old hurl before she gets oh, on stage, and
2: she's, she's, she's so, human. <laughs> I know, but she's so elegant and so incredibly commanding on the stage. And you just that is so inspiring for her to be, A, so vulnerable and, and to share that with the world, but yep. also for us to go, oh, okay, so when I feel like I want to hell, because I'm so anxious about the fact that I am putting myself out there. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, the, the more risk you take, the more anxiety comes with that. Yep. Yes, I want to spew, but I'll, I'll be okay. I'll do it anyway,
1: just like Adele. Just like Adele. <laughs> be like Adele. Be-, <laughs> be
2: like Adele. Oh, my God. Well, congratulations on taking a massive step and... uh Following your heart Thank you. and supporting Lexi like Just that. To see too. where that goes. Oh, it's beautiful. Thank you. Um, so, uh, well, let's get to our first guest because how i have to say—this is one of our my absolute favourite TV series for the year. It's on ABC iView. If you haven't checked out the Newsreader, it is. So good. Oh, my God. I laughed. I cried. It's so clever. The writing is amazing. It's set in the 80s. So if you are from that era, the nostalgia.
1: It's incredible. <laughs> the eye to detail, because I remember when this came out, and I, of course I binged it all very mm. quickly, and that the attention to detail given in the styling and the set design and the art the art um, department, wow, mm. they went to town and they did such an incredible job. The authenticity is really there. Right down to the great shoulder pads, oh! which I love to this day. <laughs> <laughs> of course. You do love
2: a vintage blouse. You really do. But um, the fantastic thing is because it's set in the 80s and, and, and really harks back to some of the biggest events of that time. But the performances by Anna Torv and Sam Reed, incredible. The writing is beautiful. And one of my favorite characters of Nolene. And so we're very thrilled to welcome to the show Michelle Lim Davidson, who plays Nolene in the newsreader. And she's, well, she's now recently the actor nominated Nolene. Oh, sorry, Michelle Lim Davison for her role
1: as Norlene. Hi there, Michelle. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning, Michelle. Yes, your character Norlene, I loved her so much. And how was it for you to play, you know, that character and that role, like you, all the little nuances, like mm. because though. You know, at times it's not all about the dialogue, is it? You know, it's about those little quirky, those, those little, the little looks, the little, I
0: don't know, the movements. You capture that so beautifully. Did you enjoy playing her? Oh, thank you so much. Um, I loved playing Nolene. Um, I think, you know, you're not supposed to have a favourite as an actor, <laughs> but um, she is one of my favourite characters um, I've played. I think, you know, you're working with such a high calibre Um, team and it's so easy to act It's so those kind of nuanced moments or the detail uh, of course we're we're thinking through moment by moment um, and and making sure we hit all those marks but also you can't do that unless the team around you is also working at that um, that level of detail as well so Mm. you know it made my job a lot easier um, and I think, you know, the environment felt quite safe and I think like any workplace, the safer you feel, the more creative you feel Um, and you can be more vulnerable. So, yeah, I I, like as from an artistic point of view and a creative point of view, it was just a real joy. I know that you're a lot younger than
2: me, Michelle and so when I was watching the show and going oh my gosh I remember when Lindy Chamberlain was released I remember um, those other massive news moments that you cover in the show the the Russell Street bombings, um, Chernobyl uh, like really profound, childhood memories for me how was it for you being so young did you have to do research into some of the events that you covered
0: yes I mean I was born just after the the year it's set in 1986 um and I was born in 1987 um so I was aware of a lot of the news stories they're part of our kind of cultural identity something like the Lindy Chamberlain case is so much um you know, I've had a lot of exposure to that considering uh, I was not alive <laughs> when um, <laughs> all of that stuff happened. But something that kind of surprised me when I was doing my research, I just thought they had Michael Lucas and the team had picked, you know, six kind of banging events from the 80s. Um, and I didn't realise that they all did happen in a condensed or I think it's just over six-month period. Um, and that totally took me by surprise it felt like such big news world events that actually happened in that time frame that we'd set the show i thought it was just like a television kind of um a uh, thing to just kind of keep the series interesting um so i found that really fascinating and mm. um i'm able to draw on the experiences from some of the older cast and also you know the creatives and crew on set who were there making the news at that time period um, Mm. and, you know, filter that into my work as well. But definitely I I know a lot about all of those events and um, I know a lot about the kind of newsrooms and even had training, proper training of how to use all the technical Pieces like the auto cue machine, or how to change my paper properly, or my ribbon in my typewriter. <laughs> yeah, All of those oh things. God. Typewriter. <laughs> I became a bit of a pro at it. Yeah, you know, I was like, I was like, but, move over props department. I've got this.
2: Oh, <laughs> that is so funny. Because oh, I learned, I, I did learn typing at school. Did it was you? mandatory. Okay. Yeah, oh yes, It's It was the only A plus I ever got was actually in typing. This is cool oh, wow. so, I know mm. it's a handy skill to have but what about the 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 um the storyline around uh the Sam Maria character who um mm-hmm. it was just so heartbreaking to think of the homophobia that we assume is from decades ago. I know that people still face it mm. um but that was an incredibly heartbreaking and moving storyline wasn't mm. it okay mm. mm. I mean, I think that um, he played that so beautifully Uh, and the HIV story, like it was around the time when HIV was first sort of, you know, world news. Um, How, as a cast, how did that feel telling that very important story?
0: Well, you, like I know personally and collectively as a team on that show, we feel great responsibility to um, honour that storyline and to make sure we're telling it Um, it's not as easy, I think, uh, to say if it's the right way or the wrong way, but you have um, an obligation to do your best to make the most detailed, the most nuanced um, story um, and show the most kind of humanity possible in that 60 minutes um, that you have available in each episode. And I think that Sam, he's a wonderful actor and Michael Lucas, who is the, shows creator and and lead writer and director, Emma Freeman. Everyone did such a great job of um, helping bring that story alive. Um, And there is something that happens, I think for a lot of, I think for good television shows or good pieces of theater where the team's able to get what's off the page, the kind of text, the kind of dry dialogue and bring it to life and make it feel like it's, it's truly real and happening in that moment. And I, I think that's what helps um, an audience really empathize and, and feel connected to the characters in the storyline. Um, and yeah, as I've mentioned, the team is particularly good on the, the newsreader, I'm biased, but um, particularly good at that and um, was able to create that, I think, magic, over and over again for all the different stories that are crossing um, throughout the the series. So, Michelle,
1: as well as you know, being an accomplished actor both on the stage and the screen, writing is very much true to your heart as well. So, just coming coming off what you were just saying then, how important true writing is. Do you draw inspiration from from working with people? Uh, like that say from the newsreader um, or the crews that you've worked with over the many many years in your own writing like what inspires you I know you've written quite a bit of comedy but is there you know a genre that you really would love to tackle with your writing
0: yeah writing has been a, a, an interesting journey um, I have been really fortunate especially in the theatre I do a lot of um, development work um, and I've done a lot of um, new work new plays for main stage theatre and sometimes I've been fortunate to be part, like very early days in the process um, and see the development of a piece of writing and the journey the writer goes on. Um, Slightly different, you know, in television, generally there's a team of people um, that are creating a show and a story together and trying to find um, Uh, I guess the right words for the the series, but people always said to me, you know, you've got a good, you know, ear, a good eye for details, for story, you should be a writer. But people can tell you, oh, you should, you know, just be a writer. It's not, (laughs) for me it wasn't that simple. (laughs) Um, And I guess in acting, one of the biggest things for me was the difference between, um, you know, acting's very collaborative, And suddenly, as a writer, it's just me alone, you know, Mm. with the computer. Yeah. Mm. Really having to have the strength and the courage and belief in my own words and what the story that, yeah, and and the stories that I want to tell are valid. So it's kind of, it felt like as um, maybe I grew up as, you know, I'm emotionally. I don't know, went on a different journey through life and um, I I feel like that is what led me to writing. And so I'm kind of, I'm writing um, a play at the moment um, and it's just a project that I'm just ticking away at in my own time, there's no deadlines and it feels like my, my project, so much of my life as an actor, it's, I, you know, I bring as much as I can to a role. But in the end, like for a television series, it's made in the editing suite. You know, I don't get to pick what takes are used. Um, You know, I let go of my Mm. work as soon as I leave the set. Um, It's not for me to kind of worry about (laughs) or or do anything more creatively. So for me, writing is very personal and something that I really enjoy doing um, because it's mine.
2: Also, I mean, writing is hard because you're looking at a blank screen and there's nothing – like it's you, the thoughts in your head and the blank screen. And if you don't just find the motivation to put your fingers on the on the keys and, and just put the words there – um. then there will be nothing but a blank screen which mm. is quite accusatory sometimes I look at that blank screen and I get really <laughs> cross at it I'm just like stop yeah. staring at me I can't handle the pressure um but absolutely yeah what, I've been there yeah but what's but what's really amazing though Michelle is that you're a unique voice we're all a unique voice and Um, I really love that you're writing. Um, I know that I've read an interview with you where you commented that, you know, you don't often get to play Korean-Australian characters, which was fantastic about the newsreader, that you were playing a Korean-Australian character. And your voice, surely as a writer, is uniquely yours as well. What a fantastic opportunity to get those sorts of stories out there.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, Nolene is the first Korean-Australian character I have played um, on screen, Uh, when I first started acting, um, when I graduated from drama school in 2010, there wasn't even on the kind of main casting website, there wasn't a box to tick to be Korean. And I remember saying to a casting agent, Oh, what should I do? And her response was, Oh, you could pass as anything. So just Mm. click whatever (laughs) Asian people are there. And I was like, really? Um, and, you know, like th- th- this hasn't been the roles. I think maybe the, with K-pop and K-drama and the rise of, you know, really popular um, Korean films like Parasite or the recent phenomena of Squid Games mm-hmm. on um, television, I, I think that, there is more interest in Korean culture, and there seems to be—it seems to be—in the zeitgeist. Um, so I'm hoping that that means there are more stories, not just coming from Korea, but from the Korean diaspora that's around the world, um, and our kind of unique perspective and experience. And I'm really happy to have been able to share Nolene and be able to contribute to her story and collaborate and feel like I have some ownership. It's very different to um, just being plopped in, like this is what the story you're going to tell, this is how she is Korean, this is how she moves in the world. I was really fortunate that the team on the Newsreader were able to include me early enough in the process and were very open to um, you know how I felt Nolene should be travelling through the world um, in that time period and include her, um, who she really is um, in, in the storyline and, and feel like I have some kind of, um, as I said, ownership of the story. Mm,
2: Well, we absolutely loved it. We loved the 80s outfits. I must mention that Janine has commented on Facebook that uh, Nolene's character was fab, loved her clothes too. I was guilty of wearing all of it.
1: Oh, 100%. (laughs) There's no shame. No, not at all. It's all back again anyway. Yeah, absolutely.
2: (laughs) Nolene was, I think, very stylish. And congratulations on your actor nomination as well, Michelle. It's just, we're so happy for you. It's well deserved.
0: Oh, Thank you. It's so, um, it I just took me completely by surprise. Um, I didn't know why people were messaging me, congratulating me. I had no idea. It didn't even, <laughs> you know, dawn on me that it could possibly be an actor nomination. So <laughs> I, I'm just thrilled and delighted and feel really grateful. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And thanks for joining us on Broad Radio. We're hoping that there'll be a new
2: Newsreader series next year, maybe.
0: Oh, well, who knows? Oh, fingers, oh, crossed. Oh, 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 <laughs> fingers
1: crossed. Fingers <laughs> crossed. And we look forward to seeing whatever you do next, Michelle. And a quick shout-out to um, your comrades in the Puzzle Club. I know, as we say goodbye.
0: Puzzle <laughs> Club. Oh, thank oh you. They'll God. love the shout-out. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm that you're so moving good. to Sydney, you can be part of the Puzzle I Club. I would
1: love to. Oh, I'm so there. Thank you.
2: <laughs> oh puzzle Club. There needs to be more of that in the world. Thank you so much, Michelle Lynn Davison. It's been just a delight to have Thanks, you on Board Michelle. Radio.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Well, the Victorian Women's Trust has recently released a new podcast. It's called The Trap. It's a very brilliant podcast. It's written and hosted by leading investigative journalist Jess Hill and it's all about domestic abuse and violence and coercive control and it's a really critical uh, conversation and informative podcast that uh, we highly recommend and Jess Hill joins us now. Hi there, Jess. Hi guys, how are you? Good morning, Jess. Oh, It's good to see you. Now, the podcast is called The Trap and I feel like that is a significant title. Is that true and can you explain why?
4: Yeah, we we thought a lot about that title. Um, The reason we called it The Trap is that we wanted to articulate the trap of the actual intimate partner abuse but then also how that trap is remains in place for so many women and kids even once they've left and is reinforced by sometimes police um the family law system our communities um that the entire thing is a trap and you know later in the series we we zoom out to show how actually a lot of the fundamental elements Of coercive control and the entitlement to having power over um, that's reflected in our systems more broadly and in our politics especially as we've seen this year so the trap really is about how the trap is set and how you get you get trapped in a situation of abuse but how that trap unfortunately can continue even when you've done everything right and left
1: Jess you know you've got this incredible podcast a book a television series, all on this you know, um, subject that, you know, it's really becoming uh, more and more public. What led you into talking about this in the first place? Where did this drive come from?
4: Yeah, good question. Um, I have spent quite a bit of time talking to my therapist about why I've spent the better part mm. of a decade obsessed with this subject. Um, but it's like any journalist who who gets onto a topic. Often it starts with a commission, you know. And so um, it was actually a commission from Nick Fike at The Monthly, who asked me to write a really a long form essay on domestic abuse in twenty fourteen, and that was off the back of um, the horrific murder of Luke Batty, um, and the incredible advocacy advocacy of his mother Rosie. Um, it became a huge issue in um, in Victoria and this was just before she was made Australian of the Year, there'd been very little in the way of those sorts of like long features on domestic abuse. It seems strange to say now, because in the years since then we've written so much, well, I, you know, I've written so much, heaps of other journalists have have devoted, you know, thousands of column inches to this subject. But at that time to really go in depth um, on that subject just wasn't really a done thing. And so I felt a lot of responsibility to you know, do it right. But you know, I, when I got the commission, I thought this is important um, and I should do it right. But I wasn't really that interested in it. And, and, and then I felt bad about that, but it only took three or four weeks for me to become obsessed with it. And that's when I realized that, oh, domestic violence is not just about an incident or a collection of incidents it's about power and control and it's not just power and control in your relationship it's the power and control you encounter um through the systems that you go to for help and it's the power and control that you encounter in, in broader society when you tell your story and they try to minimize or dismiss it you know so that's when that door opened up i felt like i'd just been given this skeleton key to a house that I didn't even know I was living in. And suddenly it was just totally relevant to my life. And I guess what I what I wanted to do in this work is to make domestic abuse, not only, and coercive control, not only viscerally understandable for people um, and give language to people who have been through it, who find it hard to explain, but also to make it absolutely relevant even to people who feel like they have nothing to do with domestic abuse and have never experienced it and don't know anyone who has. Um, you know, that it's, it's got to be, if we're going to have society take ownership of it, it has to be something that has currency for everyone.
2: I, I really love that you, you speak about um, those who are victim survivors because uh, it's, it's, it's incumbent on us who can speak and stand up to do so because and we interviewed Dr Karen Williams who's a a psychiatrist um, on this matter earlier this year on broad radio and she made it very clear that when you are traumatized by this sort of experience you can't necessarily be the person to speak up and 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 stand Um, and those of us who are strong need to do that which I'm so grateful that there are investigative journalists like yourself Jess who has you've devoted a decade to it which must have been quite difficult um during that time have you what are the myths that
4: you have felt
2: have needed to be debunked around this
4: oh gosh Uh, well that's that's work that could take me another 30 years um um, um, i want to say you know also just on on karen's point i love karen she's She's amazing um and she's a great psychologist she's really such a trailblazer in her area um And part of it is not just the trauma of victims, but the fact that if they don't have a conviction um, for their perpetrator, then they could be sued for defamation. Um, So there's a lot of women out there who, because they didn't go through the criminal justice system, actually can never put their name to their story. Um, And I, you know, for me, it's been important to, I guess, stay on this story consistently um, to so that it. I guess not because that not because victim survivors aren't strong enough to represent themselves, but just because sometimes, as Karen's saying, they do need advocates to just stand there and do it consistently and platform them. You know, and that, I think that a big part of the trap has been not only in telling victim survivors' stories, but platforming their expertise, mm-hmm. um, showing what they have learned. Through their experience, and also what they've often brought with them, either through their professional background or through their education, you know that the victim survivors have an enormous amount to tell us um, about the experience of domestic abuse outside of their own story, and that and that expertise I think carries very strongly in the, in the trap. But the myths, you know. <laughs> Gosh, the myths that I've been trying to bust are the same myths that I had on board when I started writing about this subject. Um, And it's not even so much that there's um, just myths. It's more like there's a lot of wrong questions um, or a lot of questions that take us to the wrong answers. So um, if you ask as your first port of call, why does she stay, you know, or why... Why does she behave like this? Why did she go back to him? It's confounding to some people. Why would a woman go back on average seven times to someone who has um, horrifically abused her? So when we're focusing on her behaviour, it can look like it doesn't make sense. You know, this person must have some kind of mental issue. It's only when we look at the behaviour of the perpetrator that we start to understand why victims behave the way they do because the victims are behaving in response Um, And when perpetrators are threatening to kill themselves if they leave, when they're threatening to harm friends or family if they leave, when they create an environment of threat that makes it feel like you will never actually be safe from them or they will pursue you through the family law courts um, or they just continually try to appeal to your sense of loyalty and your strength-based feeling that you have the ability to fix them, um, where you feel like if you're leaving, you're failing as a wife, as a as a partner, um, that you haven't done your job in getting them to heal that inner boy inside of them. You know, there are a million reasons why women don't leave. And most of them all they or they all come back mostly to the perpetrator. So, you know, it's not so much that you have wrong questions it's fine to ask things like, why doesn't she leave? But firstly, we should be asking, what is he doing and why is he doing it? Because that actually will end up answering that question for us a lot of the time. Um, The stuff around women, you know, 40, I think it's 43% of Australians believe that women routinely um, exaggerate or, or make up, you know, allegations of domestic violence to get an advantage in custody cases. You know, I used to think that too before I started investigating the family law courts. And the fact is that unfortunately, in a lot of cases, when women bring allegations either of their own or of um, abuse against their children, even when the children bring those allegations, they can actually find that they lose um, custody. They lose share of their um, of their children and, and can actually have custody t- removed altogether. Um, so there's a lot of things that are back to front about domestic abuse and our understanding of it. And that's why the concept of coercive control is so powerful because it doesn't just say domestic violence happened on Tuesday and then it happened again the following Friday. It says, this is a system that never switches off. Um, It's the same as what Grace Tame is trying to be, you know, get across around um, child sexual abuse. It's not just that the the child sexual abuse happened at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday. It was the grooming process that happened before. It was the whole system of abuse um, that, that was what the child experienced and is just as important as the incident itself. So, these are the new and expansive conversations that we've been having over the last two years that I think is starting to really do away with a lot of the mythology that has come about largely because we've been looking at domestic violence as though it's just a series of incidents.
1: Mm, That's a really great way to put it, isn't it? it. Mm -hmm. Jess, I mean, all these conversations that you've been having over the last decade, how do you remain emotionally neutral throughout it? Like, I hear these... We see them in the media we see these read these stories and they're just cut to the crunch i can't fathom what's going Mm. on for for these predominantly women and children how how i mean you did mention therapy great um is that is that your solution like what how how do you deal with it
4: um definitely don't remain emotionally neutral um it and part of like when i was writing the book for example um part of my mission was to be the opposite of neutral um not in terms of objectivity but in terms of my emotional connection to it um i didn't try to put up a wall um, because i needed what was happening to these victim survivors adults and kids to come through viscerally on the page and to do that it needed to come viscerally through me and that has a enormous cost yeah Mm -hmm. it um I think this subject matter has variously over the years driven me to, um, yeah, pretty close to the edge. Um, <laughs> um, and remembering that, you know, I mean, definitely there's all the self care that you can do. I have not always been great at that. Um, there's all the therapy you can do. But as a writer, when you're writing on your own, you're spending a lot of time on your own, you know? And so, and there's there's a um, an ecosystem of people surrounding you, um, you know, because this sector is incredible and it's part of what's kept me writing about this subject is the incredible women and men who work in this sector and who have been incredibly supportive um, and the victim survivors who are a a privilege to represent and work with. Um, And I've sourced a lot of strength and resilience from all of those people and the work that they've done over decades. Um, But in the end, it's me in a room. Off in this room, <laughs> and um, and I'm left with those stories um, as I go to sleep at night. Um, and to be honest, the worst, the worst of it, is not what happens behind closed doors, but what happens out in public view in family courtrooms, in police stations, um, in the media. What what traumatizes me personally. Is the way the systems respond to these women and kids? Um, it's unfathomable when you start getting deeply into it, and it's like walking through some looking glass into a into a parallel reality, um, one that you just didn't know was there until you started looking. So that's it's. I I don't know how anyone would work in this area and not be affected deeply by it Mm -hmm. um it's a it's a part of the price that you pay but that's that's the price that you know activists of all stripes have been paying um for as long as activism has been around for as long as journalism about trauma has been around Um, and you know feminists for 150 years have paid an enormous price for trying to advance the issue of gender equality and rights for women and, and safety and respect and i I see myself as straddling in a sometimes uncomfortable line between journalism and campaigning on the issue of domestic abuse. Um, but fundamentally, um, I'm a feminist, and um, I believe in a future where we can actually relate um, and connect with respect um, and and love. Um, and that's what I fight for. And it, as I join a tradition, a long tradition of people who pay a price for that.
2: Actually, Jess, that's very much one of the things that's driving us with Broad Radio because I believe, I think it's a fact, that the lack of representation of women in the media down the line impacts on the safety of women because their stories aren't told. And because when our stories are told, they're not believed, particularly in the media. Um, so I thank you for the work that you do and it's very much one of the things that drives us to straddle activism oh, and media you. And, and, you know, it, it's it's so critical, um, so thank you for that. Uh, the other thing I would say too is it's really, I've learned, important to put victim survivors at the centre of the whole conversation. And so just to mm. wrap up, I would love to hear from you because you've spent so much time speaking with courageous people who have... Mm year on year faced so much trauma um can you share with us something of an insight as to the kinds of people that you've spoken with and the women and the children that you've spoken with
4: Mm. so many so many different kinds of women and kids and and some men as well Um, you know for this series particularly unforgettable conversations with um with children um two kids who were subjected to coercive control by their um by their father who was a police officer um and their mother um who is fighting for the rights of victims of police perpetrators um women like karina hogan aboriginal and south sea islander woman who's an abc journalist who just worked on incarceration incarceration nation she's Um, incredible in terms of her experience, you know, really fighting to keep her partner and the father of her children in her family, despite everything he would subject her to, putting up with so much. And then finally, when she just loses her temper, the police being called and she being taken away as the perpetrator. Um, Geraldine Bilston, who has been not only um, an incredible collaborator, but has become a friend who suffered the most in- offensive coercive control from her ex-partner um, and had managed to not only survive that, but now works you know, with other victim survivors in Victoria to advocate for in- improvements to policy and law reform. You know, I can't tell you how many women and kids I've met who are the most epic and heroic characters um that I've ever known every time someone writes to me almost every time the story is something that you would expect to see in a Hollywood movie. There are Hollywood movies going on in every suburban town in Australia, um most of them completely unknown because these victim survivors occupy an underground um, where they walk around amongst each other, but we don't even know who they are and what they're going through. And what I'm trying to do is bring that underground up above and to show people, and and make people feel like it's safe to come out, safe to come out and explain what they've gone through, that creating a, a community readiness to hear their stories and to understand what they've been through. So that they no longer get dismissed, minimised, and and misunderstood.
2: Well, we say we say thank you so much for the incredible work that you have done over the last decade and continue to do. And I cannot recommend the Trap highly enough. It's an amazing podcast, beautifully produced. As uh, you know, your your books and your your um, TV series on SBS are just amazing work. So thank you so much, Jess. Thank you, Jess.
4: Can I just say also, as we go, just to really credit the Trust, um, the people that we worked there with, and Georgina Savage who produced The Trap. um, And there's so many people who have worked on this podcast who have made it what it is, and it truly is um, an incredible series, and I feel very grateful to have worked on it. Yeah,
2: thank you so much, Jess. It's been great to chat with you. Pleasure. Thank you. And we'll have more broad radio after this.
0: Broad Radio, talking inspo we love, info we need and sharing more of us. Watch and listen live every Tuesday 9am Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time at broadradio.com.au or find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn at Broad Radio Oz. Talk to us live. Call on 1300 8BROAD. Catch up on demand anytime, anywhere, every time, everywhere. On the train, we'll be here. 2am existential crisis, (laughs) we've got you covered. Broad Radio, here for more.
2: Well, we've already spoken about this amazing next guest this morning, you and I, Carrie. She has hundreds of thousands of followers around the world. She's a best selling author, a podcaster, a nutritionist. And uh, she's here to talk about failure, which I think both of us
3: have dived well and truly into, (laughs) and fear. Here she is, Lola Berry. Hi there. Oh, guys, I have been watching your show all morning and I love it. Love, love, love. Yay, great. Endorsed. Tick <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, Thank firstly, you. I did think because we were speaking with Michelle Lim Davidson earlier, she is, of course, an amazing actor. And you are studying acting, Lola,
3: which I think is a very courageous thing to do.
1: Very brave.
3: It means you do get to fail quite a lot and I've just been studying in Los Angeles and the Australian accent stands out when you drop the American accent like you wouldn't believe and so I feel like I've fallen flat on my face over and over again but it makes you resilient and strong, you know.
1: Well,
3: that's good because it's something that you're writing about. So <laughs> yeah. you're, doing,
1: you're doing your own research and doing it very, very well. Well, you have done. Of course, new book has, has just come out this week. How exciting! Yeah, it's
3: like seven days old, super, super new.
1: Launching in a pandemic, how fantastic! Well, (laughs) how's that book tour looking?
3: (laughs) But you've come back on the stage for it. (laughs) Yeah, and you know what? I had four flights cancelled. It was such a such a whirlwind getting home, but made it back and just rolling with the punches at the moment. And just feel lucky to be doing like awesome things like this and. Got to do tally last week, and I was like, "This feels so surreal to be back in a real life studio." And I heard you guys are back in studio today too, and it must feel amazing.
2: Well, yeah, yes. this is this is new for us. We we launched remotely. And uh, so it's so nice to see humans face to face. It's very nice, (laughs) especially
1: conducting like two-on-one interviews to be able to kind of take IQs from each other, which we could never do in separate houses.
2: It's (laughs) true. Hey, so Lola, I really love your book, Fearlessly Failing, and I want to start right at the beginning. I won't go through page by page. (laughs) Don't freak out. But the very first thing that you have in your book, which I've never seen before, is an acknowledgement of privilege. I loved this so essentially you're acknowledging uh you're a white heterosexual cisgender woman you're acknowledging the country upon which you wrote the book um the traditional owners um and I just it it was just a really interesting addition to the start of the book an interesting preface why did you do that and what did you put in there that you thought was really important to say
3: I think we were saying this earlier as soon as I moved to Byron about a year ago the first thing I did literally within the first week was I got a tour of Byron with an elder an Indigenous Australian elder who's called an auntie and I was like shivers I've been to Byron so many times in my life I've never looked at Julian Rocks which is like an icon of Byron like that and knew it was a love story I, I'd always hiked to the top of the lighthouse and I'd had no idea that it was a sacred space for men and I just thought shivers lol like you've been so ignorant and it, someone said to me I recently got a green card which is why I was in America and a friend I said to a friend I was like oh shivers that was so hard it took like three years of just like pounding the pavement and getting rejected and trying over and over again and she goes yeah but you're white. Imagine how hard that would have been if you weren't. And it was just like, oh God, check your privilege, Lola. So I just think, like, to call myself out right from the start. And I knew as well, like, I'm going to stuff up in this book. And I wanted to acknowledge that so much stuff has come to me because of the school I went to, the way I look, the way I speak. And I, I reckon I did take that for granted, definitely when I was younger and in my 20s. I don't want to do that anymore. So yeah, it was just checking myself, basically. Love it. Oh,
1: absolutely. I thought it was terrific too. Now, failing or fearlessly failing, like what really drove you to write this? Because, I mean, this is your 11th book. Uh, not on failing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's so just that, acknowledge that. Failure one, failure two. I mean, yeah, we have a lifetime of it. <laughs> your background being, uh, of course, we I mainly knew you as a nutritionalist and, and um, your wonderful cookbooks and, and heading in that direction. So what made you jump into this one? I think it's terrific. We need to talk about failing in a positive way so much more than we're currently doing and not putting it as a cancelling. You know mm. that's that's a whole other subject matter too you know the cancel culture which is so prevalent. Mm. Now like how it's can terrifying. we how can we fail without being canceled that, and that's another question. Let's go back to the original <laughs> one. <laughs> Why?
3: So the book the book exists because I have a podcast called Fearlessly Failing and the premise behind the book is insta is a highlight reel it's all the great things that we get to do you don't really it happens a little bit more nowadays but you don't you really kind of post about the crappy days or the gigs that you lose or you know the deals that go sour you don't ever really talk about them publicly and i just thought i'd love to interview people that are seemingly really successful that have got so much of their stuff together and kind of like interview them about the challenges the lessons the bumps in the road the the not so easy times because i think i know personally it's where i grow it's where i face my blind spots it's where i skill up it's where i learn and i think that ultimately in the big picture makes you more successful
2: it was it's interesting you talk about cancel culture there cares because um, you mentioned in the book one of your failures and you're very, very vulnerable about sharing some of your failures was when you named your diet program Stop Being, Stopped Being a Fat Bitch and the world lost their mind over that and you very quickly realised the error that you'd made. And I, I was so, in, you know, what an extraordinary moment because it must have been one of those kicks in the gut, like, oh, my God, I feel sick about what's happened here. How do you then have the courage to keep going? Because I'm terrified of accidentally doing the wrong thing it causes me a great deal of anxiety and failure isn't okay when you for me failure isn't okay because if I hurt someone then I you know I feel like I I don't know if I would recover from that how
3: do you keep going beyond something like that experience I totally agree with you. the idea of hurt the feeling of hurting or upsetting someone is That's very confronting for me as well. With that book, when it came out, it was called Stop Being a Fat Bitch, Change Your Mental Dialogue, Change Your Life. But Mm no one saw that bottom bit. Uh, And I totally had stuffed up completely. But what I wasn't prepared for and ready for was very quickly my audience or what I thought was my tribal gang kind of turned against me there was a hashtag bin the berry with photos of my physical books in rubbish bins um i think there was like a a daily mail story like career suicide lola berry and i just (sighs) thought wow um all of my work deals pretty much got put on ice and i was legally gagged i wasn't allowed to talk to media about it until um instagram then had like 15 second videos. You couldn't do a video longer than 15 seconds. And I remember I was allowed to do one apology video and that then ran on a current affair the next night. So it was pretty full on and I felt pretty alone. But it was, I I remember I once got in trouble for saying this. It was one of the best career lessons because it taught me that, yes, I did stuff up and I really had to own that and I really had to apologize. And to this day, I'm still very sorry for what I did. And it also taught me that I have to realise that I'm human. I am going to stuff up. I am going to make mistakes, but I still need to have my own back, check my values and keep like moving forward. For me, like yoga kind of really helped me in that in that experience because I was able to just kind of like be mindful, check in with myself and be able to take each day just as it came.
1: Well, because you, 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 you knew it wasn't coming from a place of maliciousness. Like you knew the intention mm-hmm. was great. I remember, of course, most of us remember when that came out. And I, I remember the, the storm that came around that, Lola. And I, I was, I know, I remember being on your side because I got, I guess, where you're coming from with it.
2: Well, um, you, you're using that language that we use against ourselves. Mm. I mean, it was clear that. But mm. when you talk about uh, owning your, the fact that you're human, there's no space in the world anymore for people to be human. Like, it's so upsetting to me how quickly people jump on someone mm. who may have made a mistake
3: yeah totally i and i've you know we've seen it recently even in australia with cancer culture but i just think if i look back and i talk about this in the book it's often not you have got perspective and can look back and kind of go oh that thing happened and it actually taught me so much about myself it was such a great gift i know that like you're very replaceable in media and i know you guys would totally understand that as well and so i try really hard not to take anything for granted in my career And that's why I'm not afraid of like not writing recipe books anymore. There are so many other people that can do it better than me now. (laughs) Like I just, I have no problem changing careers and focusing on acting and, you know, people go, what's your dream? I'm like Steve Colbert, like that's my dream. But like I've been in meetings where I told someone that and they spat their vino out and started laughing at me, you know, I'm okay with that now. I'm really okay with that. I'm not going to be everybody's cup of tea, you know?
1: 100 percent you know I think you know it's refreshing to talk about failure in a positive light I think it's something that we really need to get this message to our youth is this something that you know we teach in schools or talk about in schools this language that we bring into place Lola are you seeing that in your in your thought process do you think that we're teaching our youth that it's okay to fail
3: oh I mean how cool if that was part of their school curriculum like imagine if we weren't afraid of the word failure and it was actually an opportunity to like learn and grow and so i would love to see that as far as have i seen it i haven't been focused on like the um younger education i feel like this book sits with like young 20 you know kind of finding yourself there's a whole section on heartbreak and all my all my dating flops basically and so i can i I, look at this book and I'm like imagine if I was 20 and I kind of picked it up and was like oh my goodness yeah I I need to walk away from this situation or yeah I I, I shouldn't feel bad about questioning that behavior you know I but I imagine if it was taught at school how cool would that be mm. Mm. it would be so cool I do though I
2: so my daughter's finishing primary school in six weeks right? Oh, oh. <laughs> um anyway so I was looking at what I'm going to get her as sort of a you know graduation gift and what will set her on her way into high school and I've come across this fantastic kind of journal guided journal where we talk about sort of a growth mindset and fearlessly taking on challenges and all that sort of stuff and then I started wondering do we expect constant improvement too much like where does self-acceptance sit Lola do you reckon because I don't want to imply to her that she should always be aiming to be better or different there's got to also be an element of self-acceptance and say, well, this is it and I'm okay with that. Where does that sit for you?
3: 100%. I think for me that probably comes from an element of self-care. Like if I have a crappy day, the first thing I do is take myself to the movies. I know that sounds really weird but for me watching someone live their passion like an actor act in a movie or listening to the, the score, the movie score that a composer has made, that recalibrates me in some way and I think you know, in the past I would have thought that was like a waste of time. I'm a bit of an A-type, go, go, go personality. But I just think having this element of self-care, sitting with yourself, being mindful, also welcoming the feeling of, hey, I'm I'm just going to take it easy right now. There's nothing wrong. I live in Byron Bay, for goodness sakes. Like <laughs> It's very it's easy to location. take it easy here. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's a slower pace. It's very easy to... You know, have a have a week where you're like, All right, I'm gonna focus on doing yoga and um taking mat- slowing down the pace. I never feel guilty if I have a day like that ever, because it's so important. And actually you wake up the next day, usually even more driven. But yeah, I think taking it easy should be seen as a form of self care. Mm. I
2: love the doing nothing. Yeah. Doing nothing does a whole lot of something. <laughs>
3: It really does.
2: Um, Lola, it's been so awesome to speak with you. I have one last question for you in your, with your nutritionist hat on, okay? Um, it hurts me that we're so close to Christmas uh, and I'm very tired, okay, before we even begin <laughs> <laughs> my Christmas shopping or preparing or anything like that. And so I'm going to ask everybody that I possibly can for advice on having a very lazy Christmas this year. I want all the trappings. I want it to be beautiful, but I don't want to have to make an effort. So can you give me a little bit of something I can do for my very lazy Christmas?
3: Are you putting Christmas on? Is it at your house? Yes, I'll be cooking, yeah. Yeah, so just do stuff that you love and don't be afraid of doing a bit of prep in the lead up because that's going to take away all the stress on the day and Chrissy Eve. I think like my boyfriend and I, we in Byron and we're doing a Harry Potter themed Christmas. You know, oh just like God. do whatever. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that
3: sounds like no, way too I, much work <laughs> <laughs> no i got all the decos yesterday from big w so good i think make it easy do what love you it. love you know like um there's no rules with christmas and as far as health goes i have done countless interviews as a nutritionist where it's all about dropping the guilt enjoy the pud my friends enjoy mm. all the trimmings have the best time enjoy it mindfully food is here for two reasons. One. Yes, to nourish you, but also to celebrate love, you know. It's a celebration and that's what Christmas is. So enjoy all the things. But if you want to take away the stress, it's all about pre-work. Jamie Oliver has the best Christmas prep um, video and he does it all a few days in the lead up. Mm. So that come Christmas Day, he's chilling with the fam bam. <laughs> I'm going to try.
2: I'm going to check that out, Jamie Oliver's prep video. that, um, And get people to bring you. a dish. Get people to bring a dish is what yes. says, Delegate. Okay? Yes. Delegation's yes. always yes. great. Yeah, enjoy the put. I'm putting it on a T-shirt.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think I already <laughs> <So> have.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lola Berry, it's been a delight to chat with you. Thank you so much. And do get the book. I absolutely loved it. It goes into lots of lessons from how to get your toolkit together and all the things that you've learned from acting classes, which I really loved. I think you and I went to the same university probably about 15 years apart, um, but you, you went to Monash uh, Performing, Performing Arts, yes?
3: Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah me Oh, too. How awesome.
2: look at us now. We're that.
1: alumni. All the acting.
2: <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, do check out the book. It's really fantastic and I think a really great gift for a young person. Absolutely. I found it really inspiring. So thanks, Lola. Great.
3: Thanks, Lola. Thanks, guys. Loved it.
1: All righty. Well, that brings us to the end of this show, showcase. Yeah. was well, fabulous. Great conversations um, of very broad topics. Mm. It was wonderful. That's yep. what Broad Radio is all about. Broad. Broad, broad radio. topics. I didn't mean that. It just That's came broad. out. I'm back
2: with you next Week. You are back on the show Ooh. next week. We have the extraordinary Tanya Doko singing for us Yay. next week. I can't wait I for that. that. Um, I want to just mention uh, some another really beautiful comment on our socials from Donna, who is just, oh, she's one of our regular viewers and we love her, Donna Stotzenberg. She says, slowing down or even staying still is crucial to development. We have to be able to stop and reflect and spend some time simply being
1: wise words there Donna. Ooh, love it nice so one. much. Hey Kez I'll see you yes, next
2: week. You we'll next be back week. with Broad Radio next Tuesday.